0: Thank you, Amber. Good morning, everybody. I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. And just a few announcements. We have an offering box in the back. There are restrooms downstairs. And today is our fellowship luncheon. And being typical Baptist, we have brought enough food for a congregation five times this size. So we'd like you to come and visit, eat, visit, eat and just get to know people and maybe sit with people you're not used to sitting with to find out how wonderful everybody else is in this congregation. And our Bible reading this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 57 through the end of the chapter. The birth of John the Baptist. his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately the mouth, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Zechariah's Prophecy. shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearing to Israel.
1: Thank you, Jerry. We're going to go to prayer now, and I'm going to use... Psalm 139 as part of the basis of the prayer this morning, if you want to follow some aspects of it. I was out riding my bike the other day with my friends, and one of them patted me on the back and said, uh, it's a great day. Um, And he was speaking concerning the overturning of Roe v. Wade. He said, I, th- I think you'll have a lot of illustrations for church. And I said, <laughs> I said, well, I get plenty of those for sure. But he said, maybe it's, it's one of endurance. And he was thinking about the enduring prayer. As I thought about it, I said, no, I really think it is God's mercy. Mercy from the judgment that has been on us for quite some time. Mercy for which we are not... Um, we're certainly not worthy of. We have humbled ourselves and prayed to a certain degree, but we are not due mercy, nor are we due grace. But God in his mercy and God in his grace has granted us a, a window of what I would call the suppression of evil. But there's much more to pray for and continually, and particularly as the emphasis now has has moved towards the 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 vile mutilation of of children in their youth, so that they would not have children it, this is a profaning of of God, and we continually go to him in prayer, but we do praise him for his sustaining grace, and suppression of evil. And I think we should pray continually for that. We would be able to live in a land in which evil is suppressed. And, and one of the means by which he does so is through the salt and light of God's people. And so I encourage you to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord and and be salt and light in a, in a dark and fading away uh, culture. Let us... Then go together in prayer to praise God and to prepare our hearts to worship him. Let us pray. O oh Lord, it is true that you indeed know us. You know us better than ourselves. And so we come to you, the, the God who has created us, who has formed us from the very beginning in our inward parts. You have known us even before we have known ourselves, even before a word was on our tongue. It it, it is amazing, Lord, that that we cannot escape from you at any moment. Though we may think that we are hiding and that we are doing things in secret, all things are open to you. And yet you still are with us your right hand leading us Lord and we're thankful for the forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus I pray that would not be something that we would take lightly but think greatly of I pray that our guilt would be, would draw us to the one who took the guilt on himself and bore our sin on his body on the tree and paid and atoned for everyone past present And even future it is glorious that you would indeed know us not generally as people existing in a world just common names and common people but that you would know each one of us specifically every one of us needing us together forming us from the very beginning in the wombs of our mothers we praise you because uh, how wonderfully you have made mankind how wonderfully you've made each one of us it's demonstrated daily it is so common that we we often don't think about it and certainly don't praise your holy name we we praise you father that you have prepared a life for us you you have numbered our days i pray that we would number them as well you you have a book where all of them are written even before any one of them has been experienced by us. Your thoughts, O Lord, are indeed precious. I pray that they would be precious to us. We're thankful, Lord, that to some degree your mercy has suppressed and sustained some of the wickedness and the evil that has been going on in our culture for quite some time. I pray by your mercy that you would continue to slay the wicked, O Lord. I pray these bloodthirsty people who would then even go around and protest about their great desire to slaughter the innocent, I pray, Father, that you would indeed slay them. Those that would speak evil against you With malicious intent, Lord, I pray that these enemies who take your name in vain, I pray that they would be overcome by the good of your people. I pray they would be like burning coals on their head, demonstrating their own guilt and their own shame. I pray the house of cards built with corruption would collapse in and of themselves. I pray that all of us would have a solid foundation in Christ and Christ alone. As we are shocked at the horror of sin, I pray that that is about us in our land and our culture and as we run into from time to time, I pray that it would ultimately cause us to search our own hearts, to call on you to try our own thoughts to see if there's any wicked way in us and purge that from our soul. We would want the righteousness of Christ to be demonstrated in our lives, not by our own strength, not by flesh, not by might, but by your Spirit. I pray that you would lead each one of us into everlasting life. I pray for the little ones that will hear the words of Christ that their parents will teach them, that their church will communicate as well. I pray these seeds will go down deep into the soul and blossom into newness of life, yielding fruit from the Spirit. I pray, Father, that you would save every child that comes into this world. I pray that the gospel will go forward. May we fulfill our responsibilities as stewards and servants of Christ. I pray the joy of seeing many sons and daughters confess Jesus as Lord would be the desire and delight of our heart. I pray that you bless us today, cause us to grow in grace in the knowledge of the Lord. And may that be on display in an everlasting way. I pray in Christ's name, amen.
2: Amen. Revelations 411 says, You, O Lord, are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Let's take our hymn books and let's stand and turn to number 311 and we'll sing All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. Let's turn to number 511. 511, we'll sing the solid rock. Because you, no one can lay any other foundation that, was, that what has been laid, that is Jesus Christ. The solid rock. Four hundred and seventy-two. Four hundred and seventy-two. Free from the law, O oh happy condition! Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians three, thirteen. <clears throat>
3: Good morning, church. Today's reading will be from Psalm 117 and uh, chapter 118 as well, found on page 511 in your pew Bible. Again, that's page 511 for Psalms 117 and 118. Let's read. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surround me, surround me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surround me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was punished hard so that, so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Blind the, blind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar, You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as is written in in, uh, chapter 117, please let all nations praise you. We pray that all nations extol you. For your great steadfast love towards us and the faithfulness you, that you give to us endures forever, Lord. We pray that uh, we will always seek to glorify you. And we pray that the current trend our nation on uh, is on that is more uplifting to you in protecting the rights of those children that you have given us, Lord. We pray that uh, we would glorify you in all we do and that we would continue to work back our sins that the nation has uh, allowed and that we would be more uh, accustomed to you, Lord. We pray for all nations uh, that that they would, uh, the, the Christians and your peoples, Lord, that suffer every day, and other nations, as we realize we are blessed, we pray for them and their safety, and that you would help them to seek you and realize the greatness that you give. Lord, help us today in our offering to you and our worship that we would always be reminded of the things that you do for us and help us to glorify you in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: take your hymn books one more time and stand and turn to number 447. It is well with my soul. We'll have females sing verse 2, males sing verse 3. We'll all sing the choruses together and we'll all sing together on verses 1 and 4. 447. It is well with my soul. All together on this first verse.
1: Thank you, Amber. Thank you, church. And indeed, I pray it is well with your soul. I, it's one of the gospel songs I, I love to sing and think about what Christ has done to make it well for me. We're looking at the glory of Christ this morning from the letter to the Hebrews. We'll look at Hebrews chapter 1, and if you haven't been with us, or if you haven't been in a while, we've just started a new series through the book of Hebrews. I've stated and demonstrated before that my understanding, at least, of this particular book and how it is put together, it is essentially a first century sermon. It's an exemplar. It's in written form and it's written very well. Most likely, in my opinion, it's the type that the Apostle Paul would have preached, may very well have been one of his, as recorded and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by Luke. It doesn't contain everything that was said. This is kind of compact, and so we will have to look into it and expand it a bit. In fact, in chapter 13, in verse 22, it says this is a brief exhortation. The exhortation is the idea of that's what a sermon is. You, you exposit, explain the truth that's recorded, and then you make a word of exhortation upon that. And, of course, you will then find the application. And and that's kind of how it's folded through here with the doctrinal truth being presented. And then, as a result of that, an exhortation of typically a warning passage, what you should do about what is being communicated. Now, last week, we left off on focusing on a particular term, that Jesus is said to be begotten of God. False prophets, teachers, twist this statement to indicate that it's trying to communicate something different than the preacher of Hebrews was actually communicating, different than the author's intent. This begotten of God concept here in Hebrews 1 is namely a father-son relationship that demonstrates that Jesus is of essence, God, and functioning in a mediatorial ministry in the world in which we live. It, they they would teach, some would look at this term, begotten of God, and think, well, that's somehow lesser, as a father might be less uh, greater than a son, in, in essence, if you will. But that would be contrary to the text, if you notice in the first few verses, 1 through 3, The Son is said to be creator of all, verse 2. The very radiance of God, verse 3, and the exact nature of God. So he's already explicitly made these dogmatic statements concerning the deity of the Son. He indeed is, is God. But I would agree when terms like that are used, begotten of God, for example, and we'll be looking at another term, Today, firstborn, and expand on that. Those things can be hard and difficult to understand. We'll need divine wisdom to understand that. As the Apostle Peter reflected on many of the letters of the Apostle Paul in his epistle Second Peter chapter three and verse sixteen, he said much of what Paul says is is hard to understand, and then he would say the ignorant and the unstable twist that very thing, and they twist it to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. By ignorant, we mean untaught or lacking knowledge. Unstable points to the idea of spiritual maturity and may very well be unregenerate, who take these truths that are given, and rather than see them in the context of in which they're given, twist it different than the author's intent. Ultimately, from the very beginning to the end in the book of Hebrews, the author's intent is simply to do this, to point to the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. Whatever you think about Jesus, it isn't high enough. There's an explicit statement in verse 8 of chapter 1 that says, indeed, he is God, thy throne, O God. He is intrinsically righteous, perfect in all. He has sovereign authority over all. Begotten of God, then, is, is a statement which does not diminish the glory of Jesus Christ but rather exalts him. As the original audience that would have heard this sermon and then read it as it was recorded would understand. And I'll demonstrate that for you. You don't have to turn, but I'll just read it. If you remember, as we went through John, the Gospel of John, which also exalts the glory of Christ, in John 5, 18, he explained to the Jews that were against him, these would be the religious leaders, that he was indeed God's son. And for him to say that, then they were upset at him for not only breaking the Sabbath, John 5, 18, but that, and here it is, quote, he was even calling God his own father, okay? Not, not in a general sense are we, we call or we call him father. And by the way, the only way we could call him father is through our union with Christ, He is the only begotten of the Father. That is a unique relationship. Again, it points not to his essence but to his his work, his mediatorial work. But they would say he's calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God. So when it says begotten, the son begotten of God, that God is his Father, this is communicating the concept that he's equal with God. It's not a lesser thing. But ignorant... Unstable people will twist, and I hope you've seen now as we've kind of argued through this a little bit already going through uh, chapter 1, that context really helps you understand scripture. You just can't pull them out, extract them like a tooth, and just examine it. It needs to be seen in its whole, how each one then will shine forth. This morning I mentioned we're going to look at another concept that is often misunderstood. It's in verse 6. The term is firstborn. It's an exalted title, and I want you to hold on to it like a jewel. Only begotten is a title, and so is this term firstborn. It's an exalted title. It doesn't refer to his nature or essence in that sense of him being God, but it does refer to him in his high priestly, kingly work, if you will. This, by the way, is going to be expanded on and explained in a greater detail later on in the letter to Hebrews, which I hope you're reading along or reading ahead. But it'll be explained as he brings up this idea of Melchizedek, a priestly king. Let's read verse 6 then. We'll highlight it today, but I want to read it in its context, and so I will read the entire chapter. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1, and you'll see this jewel in the setting in which it occurs. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. Our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much as much superior to the angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hand. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. And to which of the angels, has he ever said, sit on my right hand, and I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you will grant us, by the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, to hear and heed your word today. May Christ be exalted in our hearts. May you even send ministering spirits to serve those who indeed would inherit salvation, and I pray this would even be that day in which they confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Pray this in his matchless name. Amen. Structurally, this first chapter, as I've demonstrated before, just to give you the quick overview again, seven dogmatic statements are, are, are said in the first three verses, really quick, about the excellency or the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now in the remaining of the chapter what what goes on is proof of his excellencies and that is quotations then from the old, what we would think of as the old testament biblical proofs demonstrating the superiority of Jesus the transitional hinge that really points to that is verse 4 that he is much superior and then th- then what is brought up is angelic beings which would have been thought of as very superior in that day. But he has a more superior name than theirs because he has inherited a more excellent name, verse 4. Superior voice than the prophets in the first three verses, and now in the remainder, superior than angels. This, again, speaks to his office as mediator. Prophets were thought of as high regard. They would have been considered very important to those who would hear a word from God. But the Son is superior. He's going to show uh, and demonstrate various proofs from the Old Testament to show that Jesus is superior to, in their minds, what they think of as the highest order, and that would be angels. When Jesus took on the form of a servant, that is, man, took on humanity in his incarnation, he would be considered, from their perspective, and as the Bible affirms as well, of lower order than angels. And we talked briefly about that last week, you remember? Remember? Mankind is thought of as a lower order. Verse 8, uh, no, verse, um, chapter 2, verse 6, I'm sorry, through 8, you can jump ahead. Here it's explained. It is testified somewhere, 268, that somewhere happens to be what we would call Psalm 8, by the way. What is man that they were mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, verse 7, I'm in 2-7, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. Remember, what what sense is mankind lower than the angels? And then Jesus, as he took on mankind, human flesh, how is he lower? Well, in what way is it a lower order? Mankind made in in God's image, or Jesus Christ, in this sense, taking on human flesh, this lower order, I would argue, is due to mortality, subjection to death. Angels don't die. They're not subject to it. And after the, the fall, in the beginning, when a group of angels did rebel, they were sealed from that point. The third, sealed to destruction, the devil and his, and his angels we would call demons now, and the rest were elect forever. Angels are not subject to death. In the Incarnation, Jesus takes on the form of a servant, mankind, and that makes him, in his first advent, as we would call it, it makes him subject to death. He has the possibility to die. If you will, he had no reason to die because he had no sin. We talked about that last week. He is begotten of the Father, he's not begotten of Adam, but of God. And so he has no sin, he has no reason, and he doesn't commit any sin in his life. The wages of sin is death, so he has the possibility in his humanity, and since for a little while is made lower. And we know the rest of the story, he lays down his life. No one could take it from him. He lays it down in his mediatorial work. He obeys God's will as it's looked at in that way. The Father sends the Son to fulfill all righteousness. He bears all the sins of those who put their trust in him and lays down his life and dies. Verse 3, if you're in Hebrews, go back to chapter 1 and verse (coughs) 3, that is what is described there as the purification for sins. When he dies, he makes atonement or purification for sin, not his sin, but those that are laid on him. And when that is complete, This is in his humility. When that is complete, then he is exalted. Notice verse 3, it says, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This fulfills the messianic psalm as as quoted, You have crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 8, putting everything under subjection under his Our text is going to verse 6 of chapter 1 and this concept then of firstborn. Jesus is put into an exalted state, but this is looking at him as firstborn. And I think it would be helpful to really understand firstborn and what connection those of us in Christ have to that concept. And I'll just try to unpack at least three, one, the position, two, the power, and three, the praise. All of this, which the Son receives. And by doing so, it demonstrates that he has a more excellent name than angels. In other words, he is the supreme. He will demonstrate that as the very firstborn. That's our goal. Our goal is to exalt Jesus Christ, to focus on his glory. But as we do, I hope you see that and recognize as you look at the exalted Christ, you'll recognize that in his exaltation, he lifts up those that are in him. In other words, the blessing that he would have as a firstborn overflows to his beloved, then, saints of God, begotten of God, firstborn of God, in that sense. We are made, as human beings, lower than angels in this life. All of us are subject to death, mortality. Through our union with Christ, however, there will be an exaltation of those that are in Christ, not because of your own right or privileges or your own wages, (laughs) which is truly death, but because of his gift and his mercy, his glorious grace that will abound to his beloved. So I think it would be helpful to look a little closer at this term in verse 6, firstborn. God brings his firstborn into the world. The Greek word here is prototokos. It occurs nine times in the New Testament, eight of which are referred to directly of Jesus Christ. I think it would be helpful for us to understand when you see this term, at least in English, and as a good translation, a good understanding of it, firstborn, but understand it in this way. This does not primarily refer to chronological order. That isn't the point of the term. It's often the case, but not always. Really, what it points to more than chronology is the idea of dignity, honor, might of that person. This concept of firstborn really comes from the Old Testament and I'll read you a passage. You can write it down or look it up. Genesis 49, verse 3. Here, Reuben is called my firstborn. And then, which he was chronologically. However, to explain firstborn, it isn't just doesn't stop right there. Genesis 49 3, you're my firstborn. And then here's the explanation of what it means to be firstborn. The first, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent dignity and preeminent power. I think those are two terms to really hold on to, especially the idea of preeminence. The preeminent one, the preeminent one in dignity, the preeminent one in power, might, first fruits. From the Semitic perspective, it's dignity and power that is of primary emphasis. This dignity which will come because of this title and this position will be one of leadership and judicial power. Privileges that normally go to the child that was born first, the male in the home, but chronologically, but not always, because it could be lost. In fact, Reuben actually loses this title and privilege because of his sin. You can find it later on in that chapter. He rebels morally and loses those rights and privileges of being firstborn. And probably what also comes to your mind, read it easy, is from Genesis 25, where Esau trades his birthright to Jacob for a pot of stew. Remember that story? So primarily when the title is used, it it isn't used of the chronological order in which someone was born, but is a title of power, preeminence, of dignity. It is also a title that is used to describe one that would be beloved. Exodus chapter 4, speaking of Israel, God says to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Get the imagery? It, the, this is that the, whatever power and dignity they might have was bestowed on them. But in that context, it's using it in, a, in another realm, and that is one of belovedness. The Messiah then that is promised that comes from this beloved line of firstborn is said to be firstborn. I'll quote Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven. The Messianic Psalm says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. There's a description of not his essence, of his essential nature and being, but really of what he's going to do as mediator, a priestly king, and of the highest order, hence being firstborn. That's what this title is emphasizing. The psalmist clarifies our thoughts on this title. The firstborn here in Hebrews 1.6 is a designation which primarily points to honor, dignity, and authority. As he will show, it is at the highest even among angels. So another synonym for this would be preeminent one or chief one. In fact, here I invite you to see how this is played out in the book of Colossians, with Colossians, which and we'll look at chapter 1 if you want to follow along, because this is another place in which unstable and ignorant people twist out of context. You've got to look at it biblically. What, what, is this, what does this whole title mean, firstborn, and, and how does it compare? And in Colossians 1.15, for example, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, speaking of of Jesus. And, and again, I, I don't see how you can miss the point of what's being said in verse 15. He says he's the image of the visible God. That's speaking about his essence. Verse 15, I'm in Colossians 1. And then do you see the phrase? The firstborn of all creation. He's not saying this is the first one created chronologically in creation. It would conflict with everything else said in Scripture, and in fact, that isn't really the meaning of firstborn. The firstborn is that of one who is chief, that who is preeminent. Notice verse 16, if we're confused about that. In creation, it is by him, <laughs> in, the, in, the, some it's in the same context, you can't really miss it, he is the one who is the creator. For by him, all things were created, he's speaking of this firstborn, all things were created, heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, that would include angelic beings who are invisible, by the way. Everything that was created was created by, by this one, and hence he is the firstborn of all creation. He is the preeminent one, and thrones and dominions or rulers or authorities. A lot of people think that they're in charge. Can I tell you who is in charge right now? It's Jesus Christ. Okay? Call him Lord. Recognize that. That's who we're talking about. This is not games that we're playing. This is a call to look to who is indeed the firstborn, the preeminent one. Because all things are created, and if you're in the text looking at it, look at verse 16. All things are created through him. And here's the second part, which is often missed it's for him. Why did God create you? It is for Christ, it is for his glory. So, well, I don't like how all this is working out. He created you, beloved, for his glory. It is, it is for him and for his purposes. We, 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 we live in such an ignorant and unstable environment in which everyone thinks everything's about themselves. I identify this way or that way now. I think this and I think that. I don't care what you think or how you identify, I care what Jesus Christ thinks. And what he has purposed in all things. Less than that is blasphemy. He is the creator of all. And all of it is for his purposes. And he is, verse 17, before all things. Right, had to be because he created all things. He before all things. But that's another phrase that, that also indicates his supremacy in all. He is before th- all things. And in him all things hold together. The the. the other Hebrews said the same kind of thing, remember? That, that he basically, we talked about that before, he brings all things to pass. So it isn't just holding it together to keep it from falling apart. It's that it, it comes to fruition as well because of his hand. He holds all things. And note this then, he is the head of the church. I was riding by, by, you know, out in the country and saw a little sign a little community church, and I know they meant well, but it said something to the effect of, under new leadership, (laughs) it's like, well, I wonder if they submitted to Christ or not. (laughs) Trust me, he's the head of the church. Why? He's the head of the body, the church. The church ultimately is God's people. It isn't a building. We call this the church because this is where his saints happen to gather but ultimately, it is the people, the body, the true re- those who are truly regenerate and united in Christ, then united with one another, and He is the head. Look at verse eighteen. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, pointing to His resurrection. In other words, the the preeminent one. He was resurrected. Others were resurrected even prior to Jesus. Remember, Jesus resurrected Lazarus, did he not? Okay. And there were others. But how is he firstborn? It isn't chronologically, it's pointing to him being supreme or chief. And if you don't believe me, here it is, right here in the text, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is why we emphasize. Christ so much in Christ alone he is the preeminent one for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven having making peace by the blood of the cross this is Christocentric theology there's no other chief one it is Jesus Christ There's no other preeminent one. There is no other mediator that will bridge the gap between God and man. It is this man, Jesus Christ. It is through this one who is said to be the firstborn that we are then brought to God. Here's how John would say it in Revelation 1, verse 5. I'll read it for you. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his own blood. He is chief because he is supreme. This speaks to his majesty of who he is. Now let me add something at this point and I hope I'm able to communicate it clearly enough I'll have you walk through a couple texts first in Romans 8 and then we'll be back to Hebrews and we'll look at Hebrews 12 I always feel like I have a a brief time to go over some things that can be really profound but I hope to at least whet your appetite so that you can begin to think and hopefully you think on the right track We've been emphasizing the glory and majesty of Christ, what he's done in his mediatorial office as propitiation for our sin, that he indeed is the glorious firstborn. When you see that term about Christ and you exalt in him in all he is and all he has done, then sense the grace in which has been granted to you in Christ Jesus, to be among the firstborn. And I'll demonstrate it just briefly. We, this, is, this could be a whole week of sermons on itself, but let me just give you an idea. Look at Romans 8. You're familiar with 8.28. Romans 8.28. We know all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God is sovereign over everything, and for those that are the elect, those that are called, wor- it'll work out for good. Ultimately, may be painful, but God has a purpose in the Pain for those who He foreknew that is He knew and purposed, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. This is the destiny of a Christian, by the way, who he knew before there was ever, as Psalm 139 might say, before there's ever a word on your own tongue, God knew from the very beginning and predetermined it, had a relationship with those that are in Christ and what is his purpose, his ultimate purpose, to you to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? In order that he might be, that is Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now you see the connection here. That in Christ we become truly children of God. And connected to who? The firstborn. In a unique way. Those that he did plan and prepare ahead of time, he, he called them in time and Everyone that he calls to him, he justifies, that is, declare righteous, and everyone he declares righteous will be glorified. Then you will have, this, this is an exaltation concept in which you will be able to stand before God without sin and live forever, no longer subject to death, no longer subject to corruption. I would think that would be made a little higher than the angels at that point. And I hope you see the connection. It isn't your accomplishment, then you have this unique union with the firstborn. How? Because you're being conformed to the image of the firstborn in Christ. Not among yourself, but your union with Christ brings about that privilege of being a firstborn is what I'm saying. So for the saints of God, those who are in Christ, those that are in his body, then have this Incredible inheritance in Christ. I don't care what you may have, have or even lost in this life. Does it really matter when you're the firstborn? Not you individually, but you in Christ are the firstborn. You, you have the privileges of the, and the rights of the firstborn. who who might go along for a period of time, and those may not be recognized, but they will be. When will they be recognized? When you're glorified in His presence. This is the destiny, if you will, for all of those that are in Christ. Now, let's go to Hebrews chapter 12 and hear this preacher hammer that out. As he rounds the corner and ending his sermon... He's going to remind God's people a distinction between the Old and New Covenant, Mount Sinai versus Mount Zion. That's the imagery, and we'll have to unpack that later. I'm in Hebrews 12 and verse 22. But I want you to see it in the text for yourself. He's talking about those that then are in Christ, who are united with Christ. Then you're not coming to the law. You're coming to grace. Mount Zion to the city of the living God, verse 22, the heavenly Jerusalem, and note this to an innumerable angels in festal gathering. What, what are angels doing? You, you can imagine the picture here of great joy and rejoicing. This is what heaven is about angels about his throne in, in great praise and, and worship. Whatever joy and praise and and delights that you might have had in life, this is a way to describe something that is beyond whatever you could possibly think. You're coming to that gathering. And then who's coming? Verse 23, the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. Assembly is a word, you may have it translated church. It it means the same thing. This is who is gathering. Gathering. The assembly of who? The firstborn? I thought there was just one. Yeah. When you're united to Christ, you get the blessings that are in Christ, and those blessings are written down in stone, <laughs> it, 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 written in, in a book, if you will, in heaven. Here, here it is, the assembly of the firstborn. Have you ever thought about that when you gather together to church? Who are you, co- who are you gathering with? The assembly of the firstborn, that's who we're gathering with. This is what church is about. It's about Christ, our union with Him. And because of our union with Him, that is where all your privilege will come from. It doesn't matter if you're underprivileged in this life or not. You'll be made a little lower for a little while but exalted with Christ in glory. Everyone he calls is glorified. Everyone he calls is brought into that assembly. Everyone he calls have this unique inheritance that is in Christ. Paul will talk about that in great detail in the book of Ephesians. We're brought together to God, who is indeed the judge of all. Verse 23 and of the spirits of righteous men made perfect. How will you be made perfect? Through the propitiation of Jesus Christ, the perfection of him. And then it points to Jesus specifically, verse 24, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. True believers are called to the privilege of being firstborn into the family of God. The privilege of Christ bestowed on all of those who have faith in him. There's a warning that follows. See that you don't refuse him. Verse 25 because you have, no other, you have no escape. Don't refuse Christ. Don't look away from the firstborn. What a great gift that is going to be given, but also a great warning. Don't think of this lightly. There'll be no escape from certain judgment. Those who refuse Jesus Christ demonstrate that they are not of the assembly of the firstborn. Because there will be a day of reckoning, there will be a day of judgment. This God who is the judge of all earth, in verse 23, there will be that day when he will come in power, and dignity, and glory, and preeminence. And you may not have noticed this at your first glance, but I can assure you that's what is being pointed to in verse 6 of Hebrews 1. So turn back there again. And notice the word again. Hebrews 1, verse 6. Again is, in our translations, most of us, right there at the beginning. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world. However, the word again, as put in here, in this way it's phrased, is, is an easy way to phrase it. But this is grammatically different from the again that is mentioned in verse 5 where it's a simple conjunction. The grammar is totally different here and the syntax is different. This would be better and more literally translated, although it's maybe awkward in English, but it'd be better translated, listen carefully, when he brings again the firstborn into the world. Now that you know who the firstborn is, now now this is a statement that we want you to think of. When he brings, again, the firstborn into the world. Let me demonstrate why, without getting into Greek syntax and grammar. You can see in the context here, the word world actually is, well, I said I wouldn't, but I will here. It's, it's a word, not cosmos, a world in general. It's talking about, oikos uh, deals with a house. The idea is of an inhabited place. World, an inhabited earth. That's the emphasis. When he brings this firstborn into the inhabited world, when he brings him into the inhabited world again, that clarifies that statement. Here's what he's. Here's the point that that is easily missed. God brought the firstborn, the one who was the heir of all things, right who is one of dignity and power and glory and might, he brought him into the inhabited world, what we would call the first advent, in very low terms. He humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant, one who could suffer and did, one who could die and did. That's what we call the first advent, when he, But he was still the firstborn all along. He still had all the inheritance rights. He still had the title. But he came in and his glory was veiled in his humanity. The prophet Isaiah talked about this preeminent one, this firstborn who would come into the world. And in Isaiah 53, he says that he's going to be despised and rejected. A man of sorrow is acquainted with grief and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. It was hide their faces just because they didn't want to look at him because they didn't care about him. He didn't win the popularity contest. He was acquainted with grief. And we esteemed him not. And he fulfilled that calling in the incar- in the first advent, his incarnation, he was borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows that's why he did that to bear in his body our grief, our sorrows, and then he was smitten by God and afflicted that is he he died he was pierced for our transgressions transgressions, he was crushed. For our iniquities. And upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. How did we get peace? Because what was at war was put to death in Christ for those that are trusting in him. It is by his wounds then we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Everyone to his own way, and that's not new in our culture, is it? But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see your iniquity on Christ? That's why he came as a suffering servant, this firstborn. However, was due honor, glory, and blessings, which he didn't get. Paul would tell the church if if the world really knew who Christ was, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He was always the Lord of glory. He was always the preeminent one. He was always the firstborn one, and yet they crucified him. And God demonstrates that because he wouldn't permit his Holy One to receive corruption. raised him from the dead. In his first incarnation, as I understand scripture the best I can, and I'll try to be brief, see if we can get through this. The angelic host that would otherwise exalt and praise and glorify Jesus Christ were under restraint considerably. You'll remember an event we read around Christmas time when there were some shepherds out in the field in Luke chapter 2 that an angel came and announced the birth of Christ, and there, there was some glory being manifested, a, a heavenly host, if you will, they're called that, a multitude of angels. But you can look it up later. I'll just quote it Luke chapter 2 and verse 14. What did they say? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The exaltation was to God. And I'm not suggesting they didn't worship Christ. But they were restrained to some degree by the worship of him. In his incarnation, when this firstborn first came, he came as lowly, not esteemed, afflicted by God. And so here the angels are, and they're praising, and yeah, I think it's a distinction that they're praising God. And there's a certain degree in which the glory of Christ was held back. Remember, he often, when he would do some miracles, he said, well, don't tell anybody. I mean, he, he always had that. He, that's who he was in, in his person, in his essence. But in his mediatorial work, he needed to come and suffer and die to be despised and rejected. And I can imagine all angels with their hands tied behind their back. Don't you remember when when Peter was going to go out and and slay the whole army, one, one guy with a sword against maybe 2,000 people, and he just started chopping away, and Jesus said, put the thing away. Don't you understand that I couldn't just appeal to my father and he at once would send me 12 legions of angels, warriors, spirit warriors. It would, it would take probably less than one to diminish the whole lot of them. No, they're being restrained by the will of the Father so that the Son would suffer and die. He could have summoned them at any time. Angels are Christ's servants. It'll say so in verse 7. He makes his angels' winds and his ministers a flame of fire. The imagery of the fire is one of, of judgment to execute it. And function as as winds to to do as he pleases. Christ was in charge all the time. He is always the preeminent one. His glory is veiled. It is isn't the angels didn't recognize it. They know exactly. But imagine them being restrained a bit. Now Jesus is ready to ascend in heaven. And. I have a number of texts that I'm going to fly through, so you can just listen. Most of them you will remember, and if you want to write them down, that's fine. But Jesus raised from the dead now. His first advent, he comes, suffers, dies. He's raised in a glorious body, and now he's ready to ascend on high. He's with his disciples And you'll find that in Acts chapter 1. And in verse 9, it talks about Jesus Christ being lifted up and taken out. This is his final ascension to the throne. He's taken out on a cloud. That cloud has the imagery of the glory of God. Remember the Shekinah glory cloud of God. But I'd also submit within that glory, is an effulgence, if you will, of angelic hosts as well. And this terminology is used in both ways. The disciples saw this majestic ascension into heaven with whatever this bright light and glorious effulgence that they described as a a cloud, they're, they're staring into heaven. Could you... If you ever watched a rocket launch, you know, you want to stand out there and just look at it going up. That's the idea here, but even much more spectacular. And then a couple angels take a moment and, tells the, and tell them something. Here's where they tell them. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come the same way you saw him. Go into heaven, how do they see him? Glory, surrounded by a heavenly host of angels that were finally released from the restraint, who can then cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is, and who is what to come? This is an absolutely beautiful event in which it's uh, going to to occur that the gospel writers constantly recorded statements about Jesus who would say that. You're going to see the Son of Man coming in a cloud of glory with power and honor, Mark 14, 62. Matthew 13, 41. The Son of Man, He's going to send His angels. This is talking about the final judgment. And they're going to gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. He, how how you saw Him go, that's how He's coming. And what is He coming to do? He is coming to bring judgment. And prior to that, He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. And He will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other, Matthew twenty four, thirty one. The Son of Man comes with his glory, verse twenty five, thirty-one, and the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. John will record for us in Revelation one seven, He's coming, behold, He's coming. He's coming with clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will account for him, even so. Amen. When Jesus Christ comes again, this firstborn comes into the world, it's going to be different than how he came the first time. The prophets also talked about how the Son of Man is coming. He is coming in great glory. He is coming with those that are with him. His redeemed, his firstborn. His firstborn whom he made, Revelation 1, 6, a kingdom of priests to God and the Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. For those that are in Christ then and united with him, they will be in that glory as Christ comes. They will see him in great glory. For those that are outside, they will see him in great judgment. He's coming again. And when he brings his firstborn into the world again, 1 6 of Hebrews, he's going to do so with great fanfare and great rejoicing. You're not going to miss it. No one will. And so then the call is let all of God's angels worship him. That's in 1 6 of Hebrews. That is a quotation from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32, 43. Rejoice with him. And our translation reads, "O heavens, heavens is is also a way to describe angelic beings and hence for them a call for angels to worship. Bow down. But beyond that, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and he takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and he cleanses his people's lands. He's coming again. When the firstborn comes, he'll come in great praise and great glory. The angelic beings will worship him, and those that are the redeemed, who are made one with the firstborn, will also worship him. Jesus is on the throne now. Angelic beings are around that throne worshipping Jesus the sovereign one who will send these servants. It's a great model for the saints. Not just then at that point, but even now if you see a glimpse of his glory. I'll read you one more text and I'll read it for you from Revelation 8 I, I'm sorry 4 and verse 8. Here you have angelic beings around the throne worshiping Christ and their statement is, as I have quoted earlier, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, that represents the church, the church of the firstborn, the assembly of the redeemed. They before him, they, uh, they, they, when they see him, they fall down before him who is seated. In other words, an act of worship on the throne. And they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. The, the crowns would be those things that they are awarded for their faithfulness. The imagery here is you'll have an increased capacity to do what? To worship Christ. And you'll say this, Worthy are you, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power. Term of firstborn, see it? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And here's the question that we should ask. Are you of the assembly of the firstborn? If not, repent and relieve and trust in Christ now. And if you are, beloved, take that with you and rejoice for now and evermore. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the blessings that we have been given in Christ Jesus. I pray that they would not be lightly on our lips. I pray that you grant us great strength in times of weakness and great joy in times of sorrow because of you. And may your rejoicing overflow in our hearts to those that we are with. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment now to think on these things as Christ has spoken to you today. overflows as a blessing even this day i pray in christ's name amen all right what are you playing holy holy i think that's a good one to sing is that 74 68. 68 sorry 68 in your hymn book so why don't we sing worship to christ now as jerry leads us as i've thrown an audible again but it's all amber's fault let's sing together you want to stand and sing about the holiness of christ and the glory of him Holy, holy, holy.
0: dismissed the benediction comes from psalms 119 in verse 169 and it's called tau let my cry come before you O lord give me understanding according to your word let my plea come before you deliver me according to your word my lips will pour forth praise for you teach me your statutes my tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your laws are my delight. Let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. Gracious Father, we're indeed thankful for your blessed word and for the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, the firstfruits. Lord, we just pray that you would bless now as we and depart and go to our the fellowship hall. We just pray that you would uh, bless the fellowship to our hearts and spirits and bless the food that's been provided to our bodies and strengthen us with it. For we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>